neighbor. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you as we come before you today. Lord, I'm just, just reminded, standing out there at the back, and uh, how we take the time in praise, and we do that the friend of every service, because, Lord, even the lost world recognizes the power of affirmation. And, and when, you, when you buy a self-help book or you see somebody in a seminar and they're talking about things you should, should say out loud or say to yourself or say in the mirror and, and say every day, and even, they stole that from us because, because, Lord, we come before you every week to publicly proclaim with our mouths as well as our hearts, Lord, these affirmations about who you are and what you've done Uh, because, Lord, we need more. We want more, even this week. And so, Father, we thank you we can do that together because when we lift our voices in praise, then, then it changes our mind about things. It gets us ready to respond as your Holy Spirit speaks through your word. So speak today, Lord. Your servant heareth. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated in the Lord's presence. And um, if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Psalm uh, 95 and uh, 96. And, you know, I notice that many, many people come from what I guess I would call a general Christian community. And even many of you who are believers, you have a kind of general evangelical background. And so a lot of us come out of a religious culture or a denomination, and yet we have been raised with a false understanding of what worship is. And worship is one of those subjects, you know, you hear a lot about and you see it all the time uh, in, in Christianity, but we have grown up not really comprehending Bible truth as related, I'll say, to two main subjects, holiness and worship. But since you're not yet feeling me like I need you to, uh, can I start off with an experiential exegesis before we get to our English Bible exegesis today? Because there are several popular misconceptions about worship. Be turning to Deuteronomy chapter 6. First off, I want you to notice, if you will, how most of us Maybe because of the customs, maybe because of the culture in which we were raised, and this is letter A, we primarily associate worship with a facility, and therefore we worship if we go to that place. So if we are in that spot, then we are worshiping because worship happens there. And if you are from a liturgical background, you know this, if it is a high church Sunday, then they're bringing the stuff out from the back and the priest is leading in a procession around the perimeter of the sanctuary, slinging incense so that all the evil spirits know this is sacred space. And, you know, we get that in our minds. Very pagan idea, uh, you know, but we feel like if the, if the building has a name church on the side, well then, okay, worship happens there. Second, on the other hand, letter B, others associate worship with a feeling. You know, when I was a college and career pastor and I, we were working with international students and I'd get the opportunity for several years to address the students and take part in the orientation they had at University of Missouri, Kansas City. And I always told them, look, I know you you think America is the premier Christian nation on the planet. Like you think we invented Christianity. That's how bad it is. It's like, but no, when you come here, you're going to see three kinds of Christianity. There's liturgical, there's Pentecostal, and there's evangelical. 
So if someone invites you, you might be going to a church that is liturgical, and at the center of the, at the, center of the platform, they will have an altar. Not a pulpit, but an altar, because they will teach you that God mediates his grace to you through a priest administering ceremony, sacraments, or rituals. But then you may go to a Pentecostal church, and if you don't do, don't be scared. You know, they just, they just are of the mindset, God mediates grace to you through some experience. So you may see someone, you know, hear somebody speak in tongues. You may see someone uh, look like they get healed. Uh, you know, one leg grows longer than the other, whatever. Okay, uh, but at my church, I'd say, look, we got a pulpit in the center. And the entire service focuses on preaching the Bible because we recognize that God mediates his grace to you through your faith in his word. But now let me also step into Baptisthood, not just evangelicaldom, because there are some things that I think we unconsciously assess as worship. Poor ejemplo. Letter C, worship is associated with how I am dressed. So if the preacher comes out in a suit and tie, if the choir is robed to sing, if I put on my Sunday best, then I have automatically, when I went to that place, whatever else I did, I must have worshipped. I mean, and we have also misdefined, some of us have misdefined worship as style. Hymns or contemporary? Hymn books or PowerPoint? And in all these ways, we misconstrue worship by our personal preferences. So, how deep does worship really go? Look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. So now in order to receive the promises of God, Moses tells the people, you must obey the commands of God. Now, that is also true of us with regard to the conditional promises of the Bible. It's true for all of us. So some, some promises have a premise. If you don't fulfill the premise, you're not going to receive the promise. But it was much more true for Old Testament saints who were in a faith that works type of scenario. So here's what God tells Israel, and yet what he is telling us. Watch verse 5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And after you have done all that, you have nothing left over. You know, performers talk about leaving it all on, on the stage. And athletes talking about leaving it all out on the field. Well, here is how much God wants the consecration of your life toward him. Because this is what worship involves. Worship is always tied to a blood sacrifice so that it can connect you to God in four dimensions. You might call this the biblical philosophy of worship or the four goals of worship. First, love. And that means seeking God's glory, welfare, and highest good. Not your own, not anybody else's. And you do that, Jesus says, by obedience to what God says. So the second element of worship 
that worship involves is all your heart. That's your spirit, your inner man. Third, all your soul. That means your mind, but also your understanding, according to Mark 12, verses 30 and 33. It involves your will and personality. And finally, all of that acting through all your strength, physical and actual actions and energy, Luke 10, 27. So God wants your total love presented in that context because that is what constitutes worship. That is what makes you the living sacrifice since the blood of Jesus was shed as your substitute. Now, why should God be worshipped like that? Well, well, two reasons. I mean, first, nobody can do what God has done. And second, nobody is like who God is. So worship goes back to praising God for who he is and praising him for what he's done. And we lose the substance of worship if we get used to who he is or we take for granted what he's done. And you know, sometimes it's easier for the younger generation to take for granted because they're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And so it's like, what do they need God for? So you take him for granted. Then on the other hand, it's like the older generation takes him for granted because they've been saved too long. You know, you, you, uh, you know, let me open a window on that word because let's say you bought a, a new truck or a new SUV and, you know, it looks like somebody's going to park too close to you. And you see the newness of this thing you're driving and you value it because of the investment that you made and the sacrifice to get it and keep it and maintain it and insure it. I mean, it's so important to you. You hold it in high esteem. So you park with the Ferrari right at the edge of the lot of Walmart. And you don't, you don't have a house, but you live out of the back of your Ferrari. And, but now just whatever the car is, you drive that car for five or six years, it has already let you down two or three times. So it really doesn't matter. Somebody throws open their door and they ding it. And the inconvenient truth is that that's the difference between a person who's a new Christian sometimes and somebody who's been saved for a while. We lose the fire, and therefore we leave our first love, Revelation 2, verse 4. So, here's our thesis for today's study. Worship is the way that we tie our doctrine about God to our relationship with God. Now, at this point, something ought to be straightened out. Because the Middle English word worship meant worthiness or honor, and it came from an old English contraction of the two words worth-ship. In other words, to worship is to ascribe worth. And there are many ways you might ascribe worth to God, but in the final analysis, your whole life should be one of worship. And that is why two things are foundational principles as Jesus expresses them. And he he tells us to the woman at the well in John 4, verse 24, and this gives us a 411 on worship. This is the directory assistance, this most basic information on worship. And let me cover this quickly so we can uh, explore two back-to-back psalms to expand and apply this from David. So number one... It is done in spirit, not in ceremonies. 
Philippians 3, verse 3, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. And number two, it is done in truth, not necessarily at a temple. Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is nigh to all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. So turn to Psalm 95, and let's explore together this 411, these 4111 truths on worship. How did they actually worship in the Bible? And you know, I like Psalm 95 because it's kind of a sermon song. It's kind of a sing sermony. It, it, it kind of gives you the biblical definition of true hooping. Uh, so verse 1, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. So we have an approachable God because we also have an adorable God. So two times in those two verses, you are told to set the roof on fire. Amen. Joyful noise. And no rapper hesitates to do this when he sings. And, and the mark of any good DJ at any event is that he does that. Joyful noise. Now, why do that? Well, verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it. And his hands form the dry land. So approach him in an uninhibited way, but also in an understanding way. The small g gods are angels, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. And they are all commanded to worship the one true God, big G, biggie. Why? Because four things are in his hand, not theirs, and not yours, not ours. They are the deep places of the earth, the high places of the earth, the wet places of the earth, and the dirt on planet earth. So enter because of his mercy, but remember his majesty. And verse 6, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let, okay, two things, two things, okay. There are a lot of uh, physical uh, aspects defined as worship in the Bible. One is, okay, you're going you're gonna to bow. You're going to prostrate yourself. And then he says, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Because after you have worshipped him, you've got to be ready to work for him. So you've got to be kneeling. So you're saying, look, I'm worshipping you. And I'm right here worshiping you, but if you need to send me, I'm ready to go. I'm kneeling. I'm here. I'm ready to go. So adore him instinctively, verse 6. Then adore him intelligently, verse 7. Move from what God did in the universe to what God does for you. Verse 7, for he is our God. And we are the people, now watch, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today. If ye will, hear his voice. Okay, so now why does he say it like that? People of his pasture, sheep of his hand. I mean, shouldn't, it, shouldn't you have sheep in a pasture and people under his hand? Well, the people of his pasture is Israel, but I am one of the sheep who pass underneath his hand into the fold because he's the door as well as the great shepherd to me. 
Uh, So he has foraged for me. He has fended for me. He has fought for me. He names me individually. Then he numbers us together. And today is the day to worship, even though it's the day of man and not yet the day of the Lord. So this is our first point for study. There is a priority and a precedence to praise because praise is what softens your heart. You know, the lost have a heart condition, but sometimes the saved likewise develop hardness of heart because they do not follow the doctrine of worship. They get hard. So with regard to worship, do it now. Do it instantly. This is your highest duty. Start with this. And then verse 7 says, we turn a clear corner with a clear warning regarding your worship. That is why the beginning of the next sentence starts in verse 7. And now look at verse 8. Harden not your heart as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me the day, at the day of temptation and proved me when they provoked me, and they saw my work, 40 years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart and they have not known my ways. Okay, now, so let me, let me break into something that You know, normally it's kind of our institute teaching, so Living Faith Bible Institute type teaching, Um, because uh, we're just totally different than anything else you're going to read in any commentary or anything out there, in evangelicaldom or most of Baptist church or any place else, because we understand that the Bible is the mind of God for humanity today. That makes it self-defining, self-interpreting. And what that means is every verse in the Bible. So how do I know the Bible's the word of God? But, you know, it's not because of the history. It's not because of manuscripts. It's not because of what scholars tell me. I know the Bible is God's word because the Bible's just like God is. God is past, present, future all at once. Every verse of scripture is going to have past historical application, present inspirational, devotional application for you, future prophetic, what sometimes we call doctrinal application. So what happens is, particularly as you read through the Old Testament, since it is not just history and it is not limited to the authorial intent of the author and it is not construed down just to the understanding of the people who heard it, the Old Testament, Paul says, is there to be an example for you. So as you Read through the Old Testament many, many places, like right here, you see the multiverse. And the multiverse just breaks through the crust of the outer level of what you're reading. Because in verses 8 to 10, he is speaking. Now, he was, he was speaking through David at that time, but he is speaking to the tribulation saint yet in the future. And saying, look, don't be like your old man. Because your old man, back in the wilderness, book of Exodus, Numbers, your fathers had a chronic character of distrust in me. But now, okay, wait. Because the prime characteristic 
of the church in the last days is that we do not have a faith-based view of truth. We do, not, we do not know or do not think we have the certainty of the words of truth in a King James Bible. Now, that's Proverbs 22, verses 20 and 21. There is no other version that reads like the King James in that spot. Now, you can call that coincidence or you can say, you know, I think devil had something to do with this someplace, but that's just the way it is. I mean, your Bible is all that, and we get to see God work in the ways that they never did, and we still do not know his ways. We are snake-bitten people who have looked and lived, but instead of praising God for his providence and preserving his word, we murmur against what it says. Oy vey. I mean, it's no wonder, therefore, that verse 11, he says to them, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Okay, that generation who distrusted God at Kadesh Barnea and didn't want to go into the land, they had to go back into the wilderness until everybody over 20 years of age died in the wilderness. They didn't enter the land of rest. They didn't enter the promised land. But then Paul picks up this entire package and he quotes it in the New Testament book to the Hebrews where he's warning them almost verbatim about how failure to enter Canaan rest is just a picture of their potential failure to enter Calvary rest at that moment and to stay there. And that those Hebrews in that generation at that time, if they don't enter and stay, Instead of going back, they lose their salvation. But now, okay, but do not neglect the intense doctrinal application for you. Do you suffer from anxiety? Do you take medications? Why? God swears you will not enter into his rest if you do not get worship down. If you don't know his ways, if you don't know the way of worship, and that is why obedience to the truth is the 411. So keep reading and writing with me right into the next chapter, cowboy. Verse 1. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. This isn't just pie in the sky by and by. I mean, in this psalm, the Lord is sound on the ground to be found. And that will be true in the millennium for sure. But I mean, this is true for us today. And, and, you know, and that is why we don't, that is why if we don't pay the same attention, if we don't give heed to the same warning, if we don't get worship as part of our ways, we don't enter into his rest. He's not going to give us his rest. And there are a lot, you know, there's so many things. I mean, we look back at, at some of our forefathers and we say, man, they went through World War I and World War II and they went through the Dust Bowl and they went through the Great Depression. I remember it's like the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl is like one thing after another and then there's the World War and they didn't need all this stuff and they came back with whatever trauma they had observed and you know what? They were kind of all right. But God says, no, not you because you're not going to enter into my rest if you're not where they were at in worship. So verse, verse 2, sing unto the Lord and bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. We don't have a gloomy God. We got a glorious God. 
He fills the high halls of heaven with his praise, and we need to fill this planet with the power of his gospel, 1 Thessalonians 1.5. How can we receive such great salvation and not praise him for it? I mean, not unless we don't appreciate it anymore. So, verse 3, declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. I mean, most people in here would say that our God is a great God. But why? Well, because nobody can duplicate what he has done. He is the singular singularity. If I redirect a, a term that Stephen Hawking used. He is the event horizon. He is the point with infinite value. He is the place where all other laws break down. And all matter and energy are concentrated in him. He has no competitors in his creation. There are no more deterministic laws with him because he is the determinator. So you should not your praise be equal to who he is. He is a great God. How can we not praise him greatly? I mean, he, I mean, he shouldn't be praised thinly. He should not be half-heartedly praised. He shouldn't be reluctantly praised. He shouldn't be stutteringly praised. He shouldn't be hesitatingly praised. Because here's our second point for study. If you greatly praise God, it cuts your difficulty down to the right size. I mean, it makes it bite size. It's like when your mama used to cut up your meat for you. Let God be great as shown by your praise, and then your problem is placed in proper perspective. We need to teach this to our families. We need, we need to teach the next generation of children and the next generation of disciples to greatly praise him. Verse 4, he is to be feared above all gods. And we already defined exegetically, exegetically who those small g gods are. But do you know I still need to define them experientially? Do you respect your employer more than God because he signs your paycheck? Do you honor your parents or your spouse more than God because you value that relationship, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, more than you do with God? What is in first place that makes God get second best? Verse 5, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens, honor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And then notice the homiletic, sermonic repetition. Just look at the pulpit rhythm, verse 7. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Decide on his name. Decide what you're going to make of his name and then match it. And if he's got an awe-inspiring name, then he should get awesome praise from you and awesome energy out of us. Now, let me illustrate that irrefutable idea because when my girls were young, they uh, always wanted to stay up on Saturday night uh, just because they didn't have school, but they did have church. And so, you know, if I could just kind of challenge some of you high school and college kids and maybe also us adults, Because my only point is that anything that impedes your ability to give God your total attention as well as total affection, well, that needs to be gotten out of the way. So if you stay up late watching SNL, 
and then sleep through church? I mean, what you have done is ascribed glory to the village idiots instead of giving glory to your God. So pay attention to your worship of God. Put some power behind your praise because God is seeking spirit and truth to worship him. He wants spirit and truth worshipers so much so that verse 8 says you must bring an offering and come into his courts. You know, in the kingdom, offerings will be brought directly to Jesus at Jerusalem because that is where he holds court. Uh, But what you need to take note of of today is this. You bet never creep before a king empty-handed. I'm just saying. Don't come before a king empty-handed. People don't even come before them. I mean, one head of state visits our president to always bring something. I mean, is there any king like our king? Is there, is there any king like our king? When we take up an offering, it's all about you paying homage and you giving him recognition. So this is our third point for study. You bet give God the first dime of every dollar, the first day of every week, and the first part of every day. That is spiritual discipline. That is the doctrine of worship because offering time is integrally tied to worship time. Now, check this before you throw me out of the pulpit. Let me hit you with this definition. The offering system of the Old Testament, tithing, was based on first fruits. So it had to be the first and the best. It could not be what was left. Savvy? Who would be so stingy? as not to give God a dime out of every dollar. I mean, who would hold out on that minuscule amount that he requires for his house? And you don't have to stop there. I mean, I stopped tithing a long time ago. But you have to start there because worship is always based on that which costs you something. 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. And I know it's only a dime, but the point is it has to be the first time because the first bill you pay is worshiping God. But because we don't know how to worship, we forget how there'd be no paycheck if it were not for our God. And there'd be nothing without our God. I mean, sometimes I wish that we go through a pandemic again because then we get Christians back to tithing. I mean, I don't know why this was, but, you know, when the pandemic hit, everything shut down. I mean, we were scared. You know, what's going to happen with this? And I just, you know, we made the executive decision on the front end. We're going to pay everybody, even though they're not coming in. And lo and behold, offerings actually went up. And I figured, well, everybody thinks the rapture is close and they want to be ready. But turn to Galatians chapter 6. How can our king get less as good off as we are? See, we get it backwards when we do not understand worship doctrine. We give God low-level worship, but yet we want high-level blessing. And Lord, help us, because the Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. God ain't your fool. God ain't nobody's fool. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. I'm just saying. That's our fourth point for study. You have no claim on God apart from your worship. Now, that will be true literally for millennial saints. 
But I think that's also true for the believer because he may be your father. And yet what father is there who wants to respond to a child that does not honor him? I mean, he still claims you, but you have no practical claim on him. And so he'll give you general blessings But those special things you need and that entering into that rest from him that you need, you have no claim on if you do not worship him and praise. And we need to translate this to our kids. We've got to transfer this to our disciples. We're going to have to learn this as a family, both physical and spiritual, to praise God for what he's already done and for who he is. So, verse 9, back in Psalm 96, verse 9, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, set-apartness, sacredness, because you're set apart to his mission. That makes you beautiful. Fear before him all the earth. Now turn to Psalm 100. Uh, Keep your finger here. The Holy Spirit throws his omnipotent power behind our praise. Do you feel it? I mean, not not just do you hear it, do you know it? Because if you do, then verse 2 of Psalm 100 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Serve him with gladness. And, and, And if you'll serve him with gladness, you'll be able to come before his presence with singing. I mean, it's no wonder that sometimes we come in on Sundays and and yes, it's, you know, that's our time to shine because that is our affirmation together about what God has done. And yet, you know, it's so hard and uh, sometimes and hard to get going and we're not immediately on it, you know, as soon as that. Or we come in late. We even miss the, the worship service, you know, and, and just want to get here for the word service. And, uh, and it's like, well, okay, you know, if you would uh, prioritize uh, serving him with gladness, Maybe you need to serve him, and then you come in a little more cheery. So hit Deuteronomy chapter 12. Uh, In the Old Testament, when you stepped into the temple, you stepped into God's presence. And Deuteronomy 12 verse 5, Moses said, okay, we're on this side of the line. Right now, we, we are this side of the line, getting ready to cross. You know, you'll cross Jordan after I'm gone, and Joshua will lead you. You go into the promised land. And verse 5, but unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribe, tribes to put his name there. Even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither shalt thou come. So God, the place God chose, was right on the border between Judah and Benjamin in Jerusalem. Now, uh, in the millennium, obviously this is the case. Uh, You know, his address is the place where he's put his name. So God declares he's put his name there. And that's where God lives. But as Jesus foretold the woman at the well, the day has now come where we do not worship at Jerusalem or on any mountain. And today the place is irrelevant in in that one sense, and yet it is totally relevant in another sense because you cannot do every place what you can do at this place. And it's not just because of our location or the name that's outside the building. No, it is because of our relationship with the Word of God right here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I mean, it's because of our relationship with the Word of God. If we had to be someplace else, but we had the same relationship with God's Word, it would still be worship. 
And it's only sacred space, not because we sling incense around, but because we sling the word of God around. And, and, so, and, 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 so, and so the place is relevant, but not because our fountains spurt holy water and not because our ventilation spurts holy smoke. I mean incense. It is because here on Sunday, God's book is open, God's truth is proclaimed, and when you combine what we give you on the outside with what you bring on the inside, you can take it and worship all week. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now he's speaking to believers, those who are believers by being born again. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. I mean, not, it's not like, I mean, Paul is not saying, look, you Corinthians need to watch out because you, you, know, you may have a head-on collision with another chariot. No, it's more like uh, wilderness. You know, it's more like there will be times in your life that it's like, man, I'm destroyed. Man, my marriage is destroyed. I mean, my job is just destroyed. It's destroying me. This is killing me. You are, you are killing me, Smalls. I, I mean, I am destroyed. Why? Well, because the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Maybe you're not treating it like that. So it's not where you are. It is who you are. You are the temple of the living God. God today does his thing in you. So it is not what you do with sacraments. It is what you do with truth. But now Wait. How do I balance spirit and truth? Because while you come in spirit, you still got to bring an offering in truth. His due praise and his due present, as well as other due sacrifices. And so we tremble in the presence of, you know, certain people, and yet we ignore God. Prepare the way. A great name is coming in here. So back to Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world, also, the world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. Now that, that's going to get more important because as time goes on, it's going to get worse and worse because we're in the last days. Yeah. I mean, I just read an article this last week about how our planet is rotating. I forget if it's faster or slower, but now they got to make accommodations because our earth is not rotating consistently. And obviously, the weather, I mean, is totally different from when some of us were kids and totally different than even when they started, you know, keeping records. And, and, and so the weather patterns are different and the, and the rains are different and the droughts are different. And guy, you know, so it'll be kind of a big deal when that you can finally say, man, it's been established that it shall not be moved, but watch, he shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof, everything in it, let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord for he cometh for he cometh to judge the earth he shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth you know Romans 8 tells us how nature groans it's like it's like nature standing on tiptoe waiting for Jesus to show up 
So an earthquake is a groaning and a hurricane is the sea calling on God to come back and take charge. And a tornado is the, is the wind calling on Jesus to come back. And, and it may be an inconvenient truth to some, but in the hands of man, the earth is mad. I just told you why the climate is changing. But when God comes back to judge, he brings peace, he brings praise, he brings perfect rule, so worship. By them then and by us now is not a small thing. And then not only are the inhabitants to sing, but the earth itself will sing and cultivated fields will sing. I mean, sometimes there are like these uh, uh, sunflower fields, you know, and you go out and you take pictures, you do selfies, pictures of your kids in the sunflower field. Yeah, that's going to be nothing like the day they start singing. I mean, you need not just a selfie picture, you'll need a video. You'll have to have your own YouTube channel. So all the sunflowers are now serenading you and... The bugs are not there to bite you. They are there to harmonize. And, and you know, that is why uh, all the ecological problems, when Jesus returns in the millennium, they're all solved because after that, the curse is gone and everything is sustainable. And that's why praise is such a key component to personal worship. What will happen then, it does for you right now on the inside, in spirit, in your spirit, with truth. Finally, final point for study. If done right, the worship of praise is all that you are poured into all that God is. And if we're not worshiping God and training the next generation to worship God, the next generation of our children, the next generation of disciples... If we are not, not discipling people in worship, as well as in the word, goal number one, goal number two of discipleship, then we've not understood how to relate to God. We've not understood his ways in these last days. My time is up. I thank you for yours. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I mean, I don't know if you can believe this or not, but God is having a hard time. He's having a hard time finding certain people. Jesus said he is looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I don't know if you can believe it or not, but your finite soul can hinder the infinite God. And I've got no way to explain that except to say that God is the most humble being in the universe. So God is still looking for worshipers today. I wonder how many worshipers are here? How many worshipers are online? How many worshipers are watching? Worship is where you come before the Father, yielded to the Spirit, and therefore you follow the Word. Have you received God's grace by faith so that you can worship Him? I mean, all worship is based on a sacrifice of blood. Jesus shed his blood because that was the only sacrifice God would accept in your place. And all the Old Testament offerings pictured that. He's the Lamb of God. They had lambs back then, but he's the Lamb of God. Have you given yourself to him as your first act of worship? And if you haven't done that, will you pray? Will you just pray with me right now and say, God, I believe Jesus today for everlasting life. 
I believe, so I receive. Here, Jesus, I give you my life. Make me born again right now. In Jesus' name, amen. And 